on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Is telemedicine here to stay? That was the title of a recent piece from the New York Times, and it's something that our next guests have been thinking about for months now. According to experts, the fate of telemedicine, which has seen a big jump during the COVID-19 pandemic, is hinging largely on whether Medicare and private insurers will continue to cover those virtual visits after the pandemic is over. Here to tell us more about telemedicine and what's happening in the world of healthcare is Dr. George Kipa. He is Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Dr. Kipa, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And also with us is Julie Rovner. She is the Kaiser Health News Chief Washington Correspondent who has covered healthcare for more than 30 years. Julie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yes. So, George, I'm going to start with you. How does Blue Cross, as by far the largest insurer here in Michigan, view this huge rise in the reliance of telehealth? Well, uh, the Blue Cross journey in telehealth uh, goes back a little bit. Uh, And like everyone else, we experienced a tremendous increase in the utilization of of telehealth uh, in terms of low complexity online visits and in uh, moderate to high complexity uh, telemedicine visits uh, with primary care providers, a dramatic, dramatic shift. Uh, But the history goes back a bit. We've actually been paying telemedicine since 2002 uh, when Marquette General Hospital asked us uh, to uh, make up for the fact that they, uh, their grants on telehealth were drying up. And uh, uh, we uh, responded to that by paying in a similar way as Medicare paid. Uh, but as you all know, there were significant barriers to that. It required uh, a rural, uh, there was a rural requirement. You had to, the patient had to go to an originating site. And there were, there were specific uh, codes that were uh, payable. Uh, so um, we've been paying uh, back then, but in 2016, uh, we dramatically actually increased the access to our telehealth by uh, having 24-7 access to online visits. So it started then, and that was kind of set up uh, to be there already. So when COVID hit, uh, and suddenly that became a lifeline, th- those online visits uh, so tripled uh, overnight, uh, and our access to our regular providers went up uh, even more dramatically. Hmm. So uh, this this explosion of telehealth during the pandemic, I think a lot of people are wondering if that is changing things fundamentally or if it's just an adaptation to the time that we're living through. George, I wonder if you can tell us how long Blue Cross is going to continue the current reimbursement rates for doctors for telehealth. Well, since uh, 2016, we've actually been reimbursing for telehealth or telemedicine at the same rates for telemedicine as we offer in person. So mm-hmm. for us, it wasn't actually a dramatic change. Uh, and so for the for the foreseeable future, at this point, we are reimbursing for telemedicine in, in the same in the same way uh, as we are for a person to person. And just to make sure there's a distinction between online visits and telemedicine. Telemedicine is when you talk to your primary care provider uh, and, and doing the similar sort of things you would as in person. Online visits are a specific way that you download an app on your telephone and you're able to access a physician 24 seven, but that physician uh, may, it's sort of like going to the emergency room or urgent care. That physician is not your usually your primary care physician. Hmm. 
Julie, in a recent piece for Kaiser Health News, you wrote that the U.S. healthcare system is famously resistant to government-imposed change. And yet, of course, COVID-19 has forced some really big changes to the nation's healthcare system. Do you think these changes are temporary or, again, are they fundamental shifts from what we were doing before? Well, it depends, uh, you know, whether people like them, whether providers like them, and whether, as you pointed out, insurers continue to pay for them. Um, you know, there are a lot of advantages from everybody's point of view to, you know, from the patient's point of view, it takes less time to have a virtual visit. You don't have to drive somewhere and find parking and pay for parking and sit in a waiting room. Um, you know, it, it is much easier Doctors can see more patients uh, virtually than they can in person. They're obviously, you know, it's not going to replace all in-person visits. There are times when a doctor actually wants to see a patient live and in the flesh. But it is, you know, it it is a very, it can be a very useful thing. um, But it does really, you know, whether or not this comes down to a fundamental change in the way people access medical care is whether doctors will continue to get paid for it. And as you pointed out, you know, Medicare is now moving to make some of these temporary changes permanent. That mm-hmm. could be a really big indicator. Uh, a lot of private insurers tend to follow what Medicare does, although, as we've heard, there have also been a lot of insurers who are, who've been paying more for telehealth all along uh, than Medicare has. So we're going to have to sort of see how this all shakes out. But in the meantime, one thing we do know is that in, you know, during the pandemic, there's been this huge increase in telehealth, both, both you know, uh, patients visiting with their own physicians and patients you know, contacting a physician that they don't necessarily know. There are a number of services that do that also. Hmm. Uh, people are also warning, some experts are warning, that the breakthroughs here may not all make the health system work better or make it less expensive. Julie, talk about those dynamics and how they, they influence whether we're going to have this for the long term. That's right. You know, in a fee-for-service world, which we still mostly are, um, where most people still get, you know, the doctors, providers get paid per service provided, if you can provide more services, and particularly if you're getting paid a decent amount to do it, there's an incentive to do it that way, and it's possible that they will, that there will be more of it. It's likely that there will be more of it. Um, that's, that's the history of our healthcare system. Uh, you know, services go where the reimbursement is. So if there's more reimbursement for telehealth, um, it's going to run up the, the nation's cost for health care. A lot of it, you know, will be good and necessary and better health care, and some of it, as we know, will probably be unnecessary health care, um, which just inflates the, the, the nation's medical bills. There's also, you know, as, as insurers move to more reimbursement for just telephone visits, those have traditionally not been charged by physicians, um, so not been reimbursed by insurance and, you know, not paid by patients. Now, if this is going to become a formal thing, like with your lawyer, when you talk to your lawyer on the phone, you get a bill. Now, when you talk to your doctor on the phone, you may get a bill. And, yeah, the insurance company may pay some of that, but the patient may be asked to pay some of it, too. So there may be some sort of rude surprises in store for the patients. It's not completely clear how this is all going to shake out yet. And, Julie, give us a sense of how consumers are reacting to this. I mean, do we know much about how people are adapting to this and and embracing it or whether there's a lot of 
of frustration or uncertainty about oh, well, we certainly know in terms of the numbers consumers are embracing it i mean remember you know as we heard the there had been very strict limits on you know particularly in medicare on how you could access telehealth you couldn't generally do it from your home you had to go to some sort of facility to a clinic or a doctor's office and you know it was a way to to sort of engage with providers who were hundreds of miles away generally um, and you mostly had to be in a rural area so that the provider you needed would be hundreds of miles away you know now it's easier for people to do it from their homes but you know there's a question uh, about um, the the privacy of some of these services. I mean, one of the reasons you had to go to a clinic or some other facility for Medicare is that they had, you know, very sort of locked-in systems. Now people are using Skype and Zoom. Um, and, you know, again, this is an emergency, and and people have been, you know, sort of satisfied to do that. But obviously, you know, the consumers have been voting with their feet, um, or I guess not with their feet in this case, <laughs> and mm. doing this. It's also, you know, tricky for particularly seniors who use more medical care, who may not be as technologically savvy. This is not always the easiest thing to set up. Um, or the, the millions of Americans who don't have broadband, for whom this will be very difficult, because they just don't have the the facilities at home um, in order to have a virtual health visit. So it's not a panacea. Mm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, glad you are with us. My guests are Dr. George Keepa, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, and Julie Rovner, who is Kaiser Health News' Chief Washington Correspondent, has also covered healthcare for more than 30 years. We're talking about telemedicine, which we are seeing more and more people use during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're talking about whether this is a fundamental change in our healthcare system, whether we'll continue to see lots and lots of people using telemedicine to talk with doctors or to even have uh, real visits, I guess, with, with doctors where uh, where medical advice is, is dispensed, um, or if this is all going to go away once the pandemic subsides. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us if you have been using telehealth before or even uh, during the pandemic. What was your experience like when you did that? Do you hope to have the option to use telemedicine this way even after the pandemic is no longer dominating our lives? Or do you hope it falls to the wayside as it gets safer to go back to in-person visits? What do you think the benefits and drawbacks are of this approach to medicine? We'd especially love to hear from physicians and people who work in the healthcare industry about their experiences with telemedicine. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, George, before we get to listeners, I want to talk a little about uh, participation among uh, physicians and, and other healthcare uh, uh, industry people. Uh, the idea that can, can you access healthcare services as easily over telemedicine or telehealth as you could in person? Uh, will there be an will there be a capacity problem at some point if people continue to to use it in in the numbers that we've seen them use it since the pandemic started 
Well, interestingly enough, uh, physicians were able to ramp up uh, amazingly well. We did a survey in uh, April uh, and prior to COVID, about uh, 11% of our providers, our participating providers were using telehealth and that uh, that increased to 82% right after COVID. So there was a, a ramp up. Now we've been working with providers for some period of time. We've actually Blue Cross in March provided up to $5 million in incentive to our physician organizations through a value partnerships project uh, to assist in that. So uh, we've worked very closely with providers to, uh, to help that happen. Uh, another thing you mentioned telephone, since 2016, we've actually been reimbursing for telephone, especially to give those seniors and others access to it who didn't have access to a computer or, or a laptop or, or a tablet. So, uh, and so that uh, that greatly, I think, also enhances things. Uh, but it's been amazing how the provider community has stepped up and um, met that challenge. But interestingly enough, the data is showing that now that things are uh, sort of returning back to uh, the way it was before, uh, people are going back into the offices. This was a lifeline for both patients and doctors before. But now the regular visits have dropped off probably to about 20% of where they were at the height of, of the usage. Uh, except for mental health, that mm. continues to be quite high. So that's what we're seeing. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us if you are participating in the boom for telemedicine and telehealth during the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's go to Linda in Detroit. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi. Um, it's interesting. I just finished my quarterly telemedicine visit with my internal medicine specialist, and it was incredibly frustrating, very upsetting. Started to try to log on to the software, get all the way through to the appointment, and your, your browser is not supported. So you got to switch to a different browser, and you go through all of it again. And then you find out you need this app add-in that you put in, and then you try to go to your cell phone because they tell you it works better on the cell phone. I ended up not being able to virtually see my doctor. We did the call just on a regular phone, oh, which wow. made it even more upsetting for me. Wow. Uh, Linda, I'm sorry that you had that experience. Uh, Linda, what's, what, what's the, did, the, did the physician or the physician's office offer any sort of alternative or some relief that you might be able to, to get later? Oh, the, the physician and the, the doctor are terrific. It's an issue with the technology. It's the technology, I see. It, it's the technology. And I'm very technologically advanced. I work on computers all day long. I live and die by my cell phone. I carry a laptop with me everywhere. I'm not somebody who struggles with the technology. But I also work in the senior community. I work for a nonprofit. I can't even imagine what seniors would be going through. with If they had the challenges I had, mm. I can't even imagine how frustrated they would be. Mm. Well, Linda, again, I'm really sorry you had that experience. Uh, Dr. George, keep, I'll give you the first chance to respond to, to what Linda's saying here. The, well, the, the technology is one of the dimensions of this that we can't really control, I guess. I think Linda has an excellent point, and I'm sorry to hear she had such an experience, uh, you know, uh, one, one of the, when I tried to actually log into this conversation we're having now, because my computer had certain restrictions, I had to switch to another computer. So there's a, hmm. one of the problems is security, the HIPAA compliance and other issues in terms of privacy. When you put in all those safeguards, that makes it harder to connect. So we have to figure out a balance to that during COVID 
the HIPAA requirements were relaxed as far as uh, uh, non-HIPAA compliant uh, uh, certain uh, avenues uh, were, uh, were made available. Uh, however, in the long run, we've actually been incentivizing our doctors to put in HIPAA compliant uh, uh, procedures. So there's no question that technology remains a challenge. The telephone is kind of a backup to that, but as we just heard, it, it, it's not always uh, the, the best approach. Uh, so I think we, we do have a lot to learn on both the technology side and, and the medical side uh, to uh, Im improve in how this works. Mm. Uh, Julie Rovner, how, how often are you hearing about this kind of problem as people move more to telemedicine? Oh, I mean, all the time. I mean, this has been one of the, the barriers. Telemedicine has actually been around in some form since the 1980s. It kind of predates computers, um, or at least home computers. But it is a problem. I know a lot of patients have those, you know, online patient portals, which, again, because they have to be HIPAA compliant, so there are a lot of privacy protections, um, can be really confusing to navigate. I will say just sort of my personal experience, I had a mental health visit in April when everything was shut down by Zoom, and it was relatively easy. Um, and then in July, uh, you know, I, it's just for a, a routine appointment with my internist, uh, he asked that I come in, mm. and I did. So, I, you know, I think that, that sort of go as things sort of open up, there are a lot of people that are just sort of returning to doctor's offices. But I could see, you know, if I, when I need another mental health visit, which will be in the fall, uh, it's like I just soon do that um, via telehealth. And I think that's, what, that's being borne out in the statistics we're seeing, that, that many of the, the visits that, that are not so critically important for people to, for, you know, healthcare practitioners to lay hands on the patient are just as easy to do virtually. Mm -hmm. um, but some of those this, that were, that were lifelined during, you know, really the, you know, the peak of the pandemic, um, when things get a little bit more open, people seem to be okay going back to offices. I have lots of friends who are, you know, going back to the dentist. That's mm -hmm. not also something you can do virtually. <laughs> right, right. That won't work over. Although I have a friend who had physical therapy virtually and he oh, is that right? a great job. Yeah. Right. I mean, with a therapist, obviously just guiding him through the exercises. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about health care here in the United States. Uh, I want to thank Dr. George Keepa, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, for joining us. Doctor, welcome, or thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. And uh, we're going to keep Julie Rovner, who's Kaiser Health News Chief Washington Correspondent. We're going to talk a little about Medicare and the nation's dwindling supply of primary care doctors. We also want to continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the healthcare system here in the United States. We were talking about telehealth and telemedicine, both of which are seeing booms because of the COVID-19 pandemic and our inability 
to go and see people in person for a lot of our medical needs. Uh, we still want to hear from you if you're somebody who's participating in telehealth right now. Uh, Julie Rovner is with us. She is Kaiser Health News Chief Washington Correspondent, and I want to talk with her now about some other things that are going on in uh, in healthcare. Julie, um, uh, Medicare is uh, is something that we are always sort of uh, thinking about and trying to make sure that it survives here in uh, the United States. But you say the the pandemic is accelerating a problem that used to be front and center, um, which is the insolvency of Medicare. Talk about what is happening right now with that important program. That's right. The big issue, you know, Medicare, at least the hospital part of Medicare, Part A, which, which has the trust fund that we all talk about, uh, was on sort of on track to uh, not run out of money entirely, but to become insolvent, to not be able to pay all the bills starting in 2026. But what funds Medicare Part A is payroll tax um, that people who are working pay. And obviously we know so many people now aren't working that payroll tax revenues are plummeting. Um, and that is accelerating uh, how soon the Medicare trust fund won't be able to cover all the bills. Um, some estimates say it could be as soon as 2022, although others think it, it's more likely 2023, but obviously it's sooner. And now, of course, President Trump is talking about, uh, you know, deferring the payroll taxes. What he's talking mm-hmm. about right now, uh, those payroll taxes would be due, you know, in a lump sum at the end of the year. But he said if he's reelected, that he will waive those. Well, that would just dig the hole deeper. And and dramatically accelerate how soon Medicare would run out of money. And, you know, this is a president who has said repeatedly that he doesn't want to cut Medicare or Social Security, but cutting the money that funds them is the same thing as cutting Medicare and Social Security. Hmm. Talk a little more about that link between that payroll tax and Medicare. I'm not sure everybody really understands how all of that works. Yeah, everybody thinks that the payroll tax, well, a lot of people think payroll tax is just Social Security, um, but it's not. One 1.45% of that tax paid by both uh, employers and workers is goes straight to Medicare. That's that's what funds Medicare Part A. There's some there's a little bit of other funding from people who pay income tax on their Social Security, um, but generally um, that's the main source of funding for Medicare's hospital program. Uh, and it is uh, you know when when there is a recession, we have seen the the the, the time to Medicare insolvency shorten. Uh, rather famously, back in 1983, I think the the trust fund was within months of becoming insolvent, and that was when there was the the big and President Trump likes to talk about that the big sort of deal that was cut between President Reagan and Tip O'Neill, the mm-hmm. then Speaker of the House, um, to rescue Social Security, but also Medicare, uh, because the two are linked. It is one payroll tax that that pays for both uh, Social Security and Medicare. So. Fewer people on the payroll, fewer people paying the payroll tax, less money coming in for Medicare. And obviously, you know, it's been interesting. We've seen a lot of lower spending on health care in general because of COVID. Um, obviously, COVID patients are very expensive, but many hospitals have had to um, uh, basically cancel or postpone a lot of their elective uh, procedures, which tend to be lucrative, things like knee and hip replacements mm-hmm. and cardiac um, procedures, um, those that are that are not emergencies have basically been 
put off. So it, it's not clear what the impact on the spending side of Medicare is going to look like, but it's really clear what the impact on the revenue side of Medicare is looking like. And talk about the status of hospitals and hospital-based care. How damaged is it? Well, it depends. Uh, You know, it's really been very varied. Hospitals are, you know, extremely concerned about their bottom lines. Um, We've seen hospital, whole hospital systems start to to lay off workers. Again, they're, they're, you know, uh, deferring, delaying, canceling those elective procedures. You know, some hospitals obviously um, are very hard hit with COVID patients, but there, there is, you know, they're they, and they are getting paid for, for those COVID patients. But overall, they're doing, they're, a lot of hospitals are seeing very large declines um, in paying patients and in revenues. On the other hand, you know, we're starting to see second quarter earnings uh, being reported, and a lot of investor-owned hospitals are doing just fine. Thank you very much. I mean, it really does. It depends on the hospital. It depends whether it's for-profit or non-profit, and it depends whether it's, it is in now or has been in a COVID hotspot. I mean, it really really varies. But some hospitals, particularly rural hospitals, are in pretty dire straits financially. Mm. Mm. Uh, another issue popping up in the world of healthcare is the worry over the dwindling supply of primary care doctors. That's something that we have been experiencing for a while. Does the pandemic make that worse as well? Yeah, it could. You know, we're seeing a lot. We've Doctor burnout, particularly primary care, um, and it's not just doctors, it's physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Primary care practitioner burnout has been a huge issue of late, um, and, and pre-pandemic, it is a continuing uh, struggle now. Um, uh, there are practices that have had to shut their doors because they can't get enough PPE. I mean, even if they have the patient load and they have the, the you know, the financial wherewithal, they, they simply cannot afford to, to keep things going. We're seeing a lot of reports of, you know, children not getting necessary vaccines because parents don't want to go sit in a waiting room. It's hard to blame them. Mm. Um, you know, concern about being exposed to COVID. I'm actually working on a story right now about uh, fourth-year medical students who are the next generation of primary care practitioners and the difficulties that they're having. So, I mean, there are difficulties sort of up and down the, the chain of primary care. I, I keep wondering, and I haven't really seen this yet, whether this pandemic is going to really shake up the fundamentals of the nation's healthcare system, whether the public is going to demand uh, a change in the healthcare system in light of this, because things have just been so uneven, and the, the glaring inequities that have been there for many years and been talked about in sort of academic circles for many years are becoming so obvious to everyone that it's impossible to ignore them. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Henning in Rochester. Henning, welcome to the program. Hi, Stephen. I've got two points. I'll try to do it fast. Firstly, I, think, I mean, having worked in the in the Danish healthcare system before I moved over here 25 years ago, I know like everybody else that an actual doctor's visit or an actual nurse's visit is also depend. I mean, what what a doctor and a nurse uh, observe is the way people move around in a room, how they orientate themselves, mm. coloring around nails, lips, stuff like that, that you will never ever be able to do on a computer, no matter how good your resolution is. I think. Mm. And secondly, I think in in our uh, very <laughs> sad healthcare system here in America, I think it's going to make it. Isn't it going to dig out the differences between rich and poor? Because I doubt that 
Bill Gates' uh, daughters and sons, I, I don't know what he has, are going to see a virtual doctor. I'm pretty sure they're going to keep up their actual <laughs> doctor's visits. And now we're just going to make ourselves feel better by saying, oh, look at all these, quote-unquote, poor people we have seeing a doctor. Wow. But are they really seeing a doctor? I think it's going to dig out the differences even worse and make a bad thing yeah. much more terrible. Henning, that's a that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you called and made it. Julie Rovner addressed the idea of of telemedicine exacerbating the gap between those with means and those without in in our country. Well, it's pretty easy to see how that could happen. Obviously, those you know those really without means, as I mentioned, don't have you know, a computer or broadband or, you know, some, some way to actually do this. But you could see how we could end up with, you know, we already have multi-tiered medical system. You could see how it could get worse. And, you know, I, I think the caller is exactly right, that there are some, that, that telehealth is not a full replacement for actually seeing a healthcare practitioner, um, that, <laughs> that there are reasons that, you know, that they want to actually look you in the eye, see, see how you're doing, touch you. I mean, that, that you know, healthcare is a high-touch uh, profession. And, you, you know, there's a lot of things you can do now on a computer, but you can't do everything. Right, right. Okay, Julie Rovner, Kaiser Health News Chief Washington Correspondent, also someone who has covered healthcare for more than 30 years. <laughs> Always great to have you here with us on Always Detroit Today. Thank you very much for coming sure. by. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow for a conversation about booming marijuana sales in Michigan amid the pandemic. Plus, we're going to take a look at the economic divide between black and white Americans with Michigan State University economist Charles Ballard. There is new data about the difference between black economic fortunes and white economic fortunes in this country. Uh, Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. The program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.